invite you to open your Bible with me to the book of Ecclesiastes. Uh, it's in the Old Testament. You have the Psalms, the Proverbs, and then the book of Ecclesiastes. How many of you are familiar with these, uh, this book, these words of Solomon? Some of you are, and I suspect that many of you are not. It's probably not one of the most read books in the Bible, but I would propose that all of you will closely identify with it. So as we go uh, through the book of Ecclesiastes, I'm sure it's going to resonate with you. Do any of you enjoy working puzzles? Any of you? Some of you? Mindy and I, uh, uh, when we go on vacations, the two of us, we have worked a few puzzles. And some of the big ones, you know, the, the thousand-piece ones, you know, Probably kind of says to you a little bit to you what we like to do on vacation, <laughs> just to relax and uh, to chill out a little bit. And but we we open up the box, dump out the pieces on a table, turn them over where they're all face up, and the strategy is to look for individual pieces that have flat, straight edges, and then we begin to put them all together in order to to form the outside frame. And then you begin to sort the rest of the pieces by common colors or designs. And slowly, as you fit piece into piece, as you match them all up and connecting them one by one, over a period of time and lots of conversation, all of the pieces get connected, producing, producing the bigger picture. That pretty much summarizes the book of Ecclesiastes. The author Solomon runs an experiment and he takes his time, a lifetime. The course is many years. He works and thinks about all the different pieces of his life. He examines each part very carefully and eventually puts them all together and discovers the final picture. Solomon realizes there is a bigger picture, which is the reason God inspires him to write this book. Twelve chapters are given to help us see the meaning of life, that there is a bigger picture to it all. You ever stop to realize how marketing strategies sell us their products? They try and get into our heads. If you buy this new truck, oh, you're going to feel much more satisfied. You're going to feel better about yourself. If you join this gym, it's going to transform your self-image. If you buy these new shoes, go on this carnival cruise, eat this cheesy pizza, it's going to make you feel happy. If you enroll in this college and secure this degree, oh, it'll be life-changing. If you make the midnight run to the border, it's just what you need. It'll satisfy that craving. If you drink this beer, drink this bourbon, drink this vodka, it's going to lift your spirit. If you can get your doctor to prescribe this prescription, it's going to solve everything. And by the way, have you listened to those prescription commercials as they rattle off all the potential side effects? Have you heard those? Right? 
While it may not be the norm, in some cases you may experience kidney failure, brain aneurysms, blood clots, paralysis, a coma, memory loss, fever, blurred vision, nosebleeds, and on and on. Yeah, I want my doctor to prescribe that for me for sure. But the reality is that most of us at different points in life will try to figure things out. After a long day, perhaps a long week or even a long month, do you ever pull into the driveway or pull into the parking lot and just sit in your car and begin to think about everything and start to ask questions? What am I doing? Maybe I should be doing something else. What's the purpose of all of this? Is this the all, all there is? Is this what I signed up for? Is this what I can expect for the rest of my life? The writer Solomon, his dad was King David. And after King David consolidates the kingdom of Israel, he turns the reins over to his son, Solomon, to run the nation. In 2 Chronicles chapter 1, the Bible records this transition of power. Let me read to you what the text says. Solomon, son of David, established himself firmly over his kingdom, for the Lord God was with him, and God appeared to Solomon and said to him, ask for whatever you want me to give you. Solomon answered God, you have shown great kindness to David, my father, and have made me king in his place. Now, Lord God, let your promise to my father David be confirmed, for you have made me king over a people who are as numerous as the dust of the earth. God, will you give me wisdom? Would you give me knowledge that I may lead this people? For who is able to govern this great people of yours? And God said to Solomon, since this is your heart's desire and you have not asked me for wealth, you've not asked for possessions, you've not asked for honor nor the death of your enemies, and since you have not asked for a long life but wisdom and knowledge to govern my people for whom I have made you king, therefore wisdom and knowledge will be given you and I will also give you wealth and possessions and honor such as no king who was ever before you and none who will ever come after. The point is, as Solomon ascends to the throne, God blessed him to experience life and to live life as no man had ever lived before him. The Bible says that Solomon was the richest man who ever lived. He had the finest homes, the best vacation getaways. Solomon was the wisest man on the face of the earth. No one made better decisions than Solomon. Solomon had the biggest job in the world. He was the king of Israel, the strongest nation on the earth at that time. Solomon was the Don Juan of his day. 
700 wives and 300 girlfriends. A happy dude, do you think? And you, can you believe it? This guy who has all of that is unhappy. He's not happy. You read through the book of Ecclesiastes, he's empty. He's feeling unfulfilled. And so he runs an experiment. And he takes us on a tour called the Tour de Life. And he slowly begins to put all of the pieces together to help us to see the bigger picture. And let me tell you up front the lesson. As you journey through the book of Ecclesiastes, the reality is this. If God, if God does not guide you to connect all the pieces, you will never see the bigger picture. I want you to read with me Ecclesiastes chapter 1. And then we'll flip over to chapter 12 and read a couple of verses. Ecclesiastes chapter 1 verse 1. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What profit has a man from all his labor in which he toils under the sun? One generation passes away and another generation comes, but the earth abides forever. The sun also rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it arose. The wind goes towards the south and turns around to the north. The wind whirls about continually and comes again on its circuit. All the rivers run into the sea, yet the sea is not full. To the place from which the rivers come, there they return again. All things are full of labor. Man cannot express it. The eye is not satisfied with what it sees, nor the ear filled with hearing. That which has been is what will be. That which is done is what will be done. And there is nothing new under the sun. Is there anything of which it may be said, see, this is new? Huh, it's already been done in ancient times before us. There is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of things that are to come and this is pretty depressing, by those who will come after. I, the preacher, was king over Israel and Jerusalem, and I set my heart to seek and search out by wisdom concerning all that is done under heaven. This burdensome task God has given to the sons of man by which they may be exercised. I've seen all the works that are done under the sun, and indeed all is vanity and grasping for the wind. What is crooked cannot be made straight, and what is lacking cannot be numbered. I communed with my heart, saying, Look, I have attained greatness 
and have gained more wisdom than all who were before me in Jerusalem. My heart has understood great wisdom and knowledge, and I set my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. I perceive that this also is grasping for the wind. For in much wisdom is much grief, and he who increases knowledge also increases sorrow. Chapter 12, verse 8. Chapter 12, verse 8. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher, all is vanity. And moreover, because the preacher was wise, he still thought the, taught the people knowledge. Yes, he pondered and sought out and set in order many proverbs. The preacher sought to find acceptable words, and what was written was upright, words of truth. The words of the wise are like goads, and the words of scholars like well-driven nails given by one shepherd. And further, my son, be admonished by these. Of making many books there is no end, and much study is wearisome to the flesh. So let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is man's all. For God will bring every work into judgment, including Every secret thing, whether good or evil, I invite you to pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your presence through the Holy Spirit. We pray that you would give us ears to hear what you want to say to us. And we thank you that you're a good, good father. Speak to us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. If you go back to chapter 1, you see that the entire chapter is summarized in the first three verses. Read them again with me. Words of the preacher, son of David, king in Jerusalem, vanity of vanities, says the preacher, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What profit has a man from all his labor in which he toils under the sun? It's all vanity. The word vanity means empty, futile. Solomon was the man who had it all. He had what everyone is trying to acquire. He has education, he has money, he has power, he has fame, he has success, he has pleasure, he has relationships. But as he writes, he keeps repeating himself over and over Vanity of vanities. It's all vanity. And in verse 3, he raises the question. What profit is all of this? What's the advantage does a man have from all of his work, all of his toil, all of his labor under the sun? And I want to dwell for a few minutes on that phrase, under the sun. If you have your Bible, I want to encourage you to keep it open with me because I'm going to walk through some things here uh, with you. So chapter one, let's look at this phrase, under the sun. So let's, let's work together. He first mentions it in verse three, what profit has a man from all of his labor in which he toils under the sun? Look at verse nine. 
That which has been is what will be. That which is done is what will be done. And there's nothing new under the sun. Look at verse 14. I've seen all the works that are done under the sun. And indeed all is vanity and grasping for the wind. Chapter 2. Chapter 2, verse 11, I looked on all the works that my hands had done and all the labor in which I had toiled, and indeed all was vanity and grasping for the wind. There was no profit under the sun. Verse 17, chapter 2, therefore I hated life because the work that was done under the sun was distressing to me. Verse 18, I hated all my labor in which I had toiled under the sun. Verse 19, and who knows whether he will be a wise or a fool, yet he will rule over all my labor in which I toiled and which I have shown myself wise under the sun. Verse 20, therefore I turned my heart and despaired of all the labor in which I had toiled under the sun. Verse 22, for what has a man for all of his labor and for the striving of his heart for which he has toiled under the sun, chapter 3, verse 16. Moreover, I saw this under the sun. Chapter 4, verse 1. I returned and considered all the oppression that is done under the sun. Verse 7. Then I returned and I saw vanity under the sun. Verse 8, 15. I saw all the living who walk under the sun. Chapter 5, verse 13, there is a severe evil which I have seen under the sun. Chapter 5, verse 18, here is what I have seen. It is good and fitting for one to eat and drink and to enjoy the good of all his labor in which he toils under the sun. Chapter 6, verse 1, there is an evil which I have seen under the sun and it's common among men. Verse 12, he who knows what is good for man in life all the days of his vain life, he passes like a shadow. Who can tell what will happen to him under the sun? I'm going to stop. I could go on. Under the sun, over and over, Solomon is describing life. We live under the sun. We work under the sun. We have relationships under the sun. He's describing everything that we do. He's talking about your life and he's talking about mine. And he says the life we live on this earth is vain. It's all vanity. It's all empty. It's futile under the sun. We live up and we live down. We're happy, we're sad. We're mad, we're glad. We laugh, we cry. We praise God and curse our neighbor. We watch the news and it's all about life under the sun. Pretty puzzling stuff. Why is Putin destroying lives, causing so much human suffering and death? What's the sense of it all? How do you explain it under the sun? Some of the nicest, kindest people you would ever want to meet are diagnosed with cancer and they suffer. And you back up and you ask, what's the meaning of it? What's the purpose of it under the sun? The fact is life in the real world, life lived under the sun is hard to figure out. 
And at times it may feel very random and it may feel out of control. Friday evening, I met a pastor. His name is Tim. He helped officiate the worthy wedding. As we began to sit and talk together, he shared with me, he has five kids. Three years ago, his son was 28 years of age, living in an apartment in Tennessee. A man broke in the apartment and for no reason murdered his son. That's life under the sun. Solomon's experiment causes him to conclude, I've seen it all. I've had it all. I've experienced everything there is to experience, and my conclusion is it's futile. It's empty. It's unfair. It's painful. It's hurtful. It's even harmful. And if that's not bad enough, he goes on to describe life under the sun has one common denominator that all of us share, a common experience that we all share, a common experience that awaits us. Look at verse 3 and 4. His tour to life is pretty depressing. Look at verse 3 and 4. What profit has a man from all his labor in which he toils under the sun? One generation passes away and another generation comes, but the earth abides forever. The conclusion, verse 12 through 14, so let's look at that again, and we'll see if we can kind of tie all of this together. I, the preacher, was king over Israel. My experiment was to seek and to search out by wisdom concerning everything that's done under heaven. And it's a burdensome task God has given to the sons of man by which they may be exercised. I've seen all the works, everything that is done under the sun, and indeed, it's all vanity. It's all grasping after the wind. Everything, he says, all, like grasping at the after the wind. I want to challenge you to try to do that. Try to do that. Try, try to catch the wind. See how long you can hold it. If advertisers are successful can, in convincing us to grab hold of their product, you ask yourself, how long will I hold on to it? How long will I hold on to it before it passes through my hands and I'm grasping for something else, grasping for something new? Everything that's new becomes old. Things that are exciting have a tendency to become routine and boring. Have you ever noticed your kids or your grandkids? Minnie and I will get our grandson here with us come and stay with us a few days. And while he's with us, we focus on him and we do things together, usually whatever he wants to do. And we like to sit with Will and play games. Candyland. <laughs> and you pull those sticks out, kerplunk. And when it, we just do whatever he wants. And it's great for a while, but soon the, the newness of that game wears off and he's ready to move to something else. Solomon said that's life under the sun. Look at verse four. One generation comes and then it goes. 
When I was young, the clock seemed like it would just drag along, and now the clock is racing. The earth just keeps on spinning. Time moves on from generation to generation. The sun comes up and the sun goes down, and it starts over the next day. Verse 6, the wind blows to the south, and then it shifts and it blows to the north, and sometimes it just swirls in different directions, round and round. The rivers keep running into the seas, and the seas are never full, and it all starts over and repeats itself again and again, and the world keeps moving with consistency. There is a continuity to it all. Verse 8, he says, we, though temporary, just keep working and working, and we buy things that our eyes see, and we go after things that we hear about, but yet we're never satisfied. Look at verse 9 and 11, 9 through 11 again. That which has been is what will be. That which is done is what will be done. There's nothing new under the sun. Is there anything of which it may be said, see, this is new? It's already been in ancient times before us. There's no remembrance of former things, nor will there be remembrance of things that are to come by those who will come after. That's even more sobering, even more depressing, isn't it? Once you die and you're gone, you're forgotten. He says, there'll be no remembrance of you by those who come after you. Oh, we try to remember, don't we? Right? We try. We work to create memories and we take pictures and create special photo albums. There's even uh, scrapbooking photo album clubs. But we forget. Have you ever stopped to think about why raising money for endowments is so successful? Money is raised and set aside into an endowment and the endowment is named after someone and the reason it works is because people want to be remembered. Look again at verses 16 and 17. He's talking about education. I commune with my heart saying, look, I have, I have attained greatness all who were before, greatness before all who were before me in Jerusalem, my heart has understood great wisdom and knowledge, and I set my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly, and I perceive that this also is grasping for the wind, for in much wisdom is much grief, and he who increases education or knowledge increases sorrow. How many of you graduated from high school? Most of you. How many of you had an opportunity to go to college and finish college? A lot of you. How many of you were able to earn a master's degree? Some by professional degree, some of you. How many of you endured long enough to get some kind of a doctorate? Still others. I heard the president of uh, New Orleans Seminary recently said the only difference between people who get a doctorate is not necessarily they're smarter than everybody else, it's just they endure. They know how to endure for a long, long time. Solomon is describing being educated into nothingness. 
And his point is life under the sun will not provide you meaning through education. Verse 12, Solomon the preacher, and I think it's intentional that he doesn't say the teacher. There's a difference between teaching and preaching. Teaching is informing the person, the, the minds of others with facts, with truth, and the aim is for growth, for some change. Preaching also relies upon truth, but the aim is to persuade. It comes from the word carizo, which means to call, to urge, to plead for a response. Solomon is the preacher, and he presents all of this information with an aim to persuade, to persuade us to something. The Holy Spirit inspires him to write it using examples from his own life. This is what he had experienced, and as you read it, it's, it's depressing. <laughs> and it's that way intentionally. If you read it, it's kind of pessimistic. So what's the response that he's looking for? What's the aim? What is he saying? Everything in life under the sun is vain. It's like chasing or grasping the wind. And so what's the point? Whoever is listening here on Father's Day, here's the point. If you are searching, looking for the meaning of life from life, you'll never find it. Under the sun will not help you find it. The meaning of life is not in life. That's what he's saying, not in the, under the sun. Did you know that the more wealth that you acquire, the more likely you are to take your own life? Think about that. That's a fact. Why is that? Well, I think it's because you discover that life is futile. It's vain. That all you buy and all you can buy and all that you can acquire, you come to realize that it's vain, vanity of vanities. And everything you try and hold on to in life is like grasping for the wind. It's futile. We are surrounded by people in this culture and some of them even in church pews, sitting on pews who are hoping and thinking and believing that things under the sun will give their life meaning only to discover it doesn't satisfy. Vanity of vanities. It's empty. It's futile. It's like grasping for the wind. Solomon is going to propose we approach life differently. We're going to live life differently under the sun. You ever hear somebody say, uh, I'm trying to find myself? You ever hear somebody say that? Usually they're going through a crisis, making bad decisions, all that, trying to find myself. The reality is, if you don't know yourself, you'll never find yourself because you don't know who you're looking for. I'm not going to say that again. Life under the sun is full of distractions, escapes under the sun. There are many options that you have under the sun to cope. Drugs, alcohol, sex, 
making lots of money, taking medications, getting that big job, getting that big salary, settling into a career, getting more education, even some who are living for the weekends. But none of those under the sun options will help you put the pieces of the puzzle together to see the big picture, which is Solomon's conclusion in verses 12 through 15. You won't find meaning in life under the sun. You can try to, millions do and are, but God knows it's a vain search. Vanity of vanities, like grasping the wind, it never satisfies. And here's the key. Solomon's frustration, maybe your frustration as you're listening to this, his emptiness, his despair drove him back to God. It drove him to God, back to his creator, which becomes his conclusion at the end of the book. Let me close. I was raised in church, probably like the larger majority of you, made a profession of faith when I was very young and knew that God was real. I heard the gospel, I believed that the Lord Jesus Christ was God's son and I believe that he died on the cross for my sins. He even understood that I was a sinner and believed that he was raised from the dead. I believed all of that. And as I grew up as a young man, I began experimenting with life under the sun. And like many of you, began to pursue things that were contrary to my faith. I never abandoned, I never abandoned my faith, I never abandoned my faith in God, but just was thinking, I'm gonna try some other things. I'm like Solomon, I'm gonna set my heart and seek out some other things. And so I did. But God, by his grace and through his providence, began to work in my life at an early age, and I thank God for that, and brought me to my senses. And at age 19, out of some desperation, out of some loneliness, out of some emptiness, went back to church for the first time in my life, although I was raised in the church, for the first time in my life, I really began to listen to the word of God being preached. God began to work and brought me to the conclusion of the whole matter that the key, as he said in chapter 12, is to fear God and to keep his commandments. To revere God. To worship God. To be in awe of God. And to keep his commandments. 
and I repented of my sins and said, Lord, I want you to forgive me. And from this point forward, I'm going to live for you. I don't know what that's going to look like. I don't know what that's going to entail. But God, I'm going to live for you the rest of my life to revere you, to keep your commands. And then you do with me whatever you want to do with my life. Some of you have been there. That's what he's saying. I invite you to pray with me.